kind of thought he was going to say a little more than that, but uh, <laughs> that's the way it is. Uh, my name's Bob Morrill, alcoholic. Hey, everybody, <clears throat> because of rooms like this and uh, <clears throat> program called Alcoholics Anonymous and a God that understands me, I hadn't found it necessary to take a drink since September 17, 1983, and for that I'm ever grateful. I uh, <clears throat> I want to get all my thank yous out of the way. I, I want to thank. Uh, I certainly want to thank uh, Don and Linda for their wonderful hospitality. I want to thank uh, Jerry and Jeanette uh, uh, for their wonderful hospitality, and I want to thank the committee. And uh, when we got here th uh, Friday afternoon, there was a man that was in the coffee room, and he met me, and I met him, and uh, and I knew what his job was. He had the most important job at this conference, and he was making coffee in the uh, in the hospitality uh, suite, and his name's Charles. And Charles, I want to thank you for that. And I appreciate it. You're the most important man there, buddy. <clears throat> I, uh, I certainly would be remiss if I didn't thank the other speakers who have gone before me. I, uh, I want to thank you. Where's, uh, where's Lee? Lee? Okay. Lee, thank you for that powerful message last night. Uh, that was great. Uh, and heard you in a, in a little while, but I've listened to your tape many times. And, and thank you. Thank you. That was very powerful. Stephanie, we have fallen in love with Stephanie. Uh, gosh, she just touched everybody's hearts, and uh, I just love to hear the Al-Anon talk, and, and that was wonderful. But I always, when I hear the Al-Anon's talk, I, uh, I want to jump up in the middle of the talk, and I'd say, take a drink, take a drink. It's not that bad. It's just not that bad, you know. And, and of course, our Friday night speaker, she's special. I, in fact, she's so special, I spent the whole weekend with her, and I slept with her. In fact, I'm proud to say I have been sleeping with her for the last 18 years. <laughs> but I'm also very, very proud to say that she's the only woman I have slept with in the last 18 years. And, it, and, uh, and it <clears throat> thank you. <clears throat> now, I, it was some there was some comments going around yesterday about our golf team, and, uh, and I need to clarify this right right now, okay? Because we were 12 under, and there was people were complaining. They were two under, we were three under. It was rigged. It was rigged. Hey, when we teed up, Jerry came up, and uh, I think Ricky or Holly asked him, says, "Is okay to cheat?" And Jerry said, "Yes." <laughs> so if you got a resentment, get over it. Yeah, I mean, he says we could cheat. We cheated. So uh, we were 12 under. And I'm just kidding. We had a ball. We really did. And, uh, and, and it was just wonderful. It was just wonderful. Uh, my heart's full of gratitude this morning. And I'll never forget, you know, I think gratitude is, uh, you know, a point of view. And uh, I'll never forget, I was down in Mississippi at the State Convention some years back. And this lady got up behind the podium and she says, you know, she said, I ain't got but two teeth, but thank God they meet. And... <clears throat> And, 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 you know, and I understand that, you know. I, I understand that, you know, because it's, you know, it's your point of view of what you're being grateful for. But let me tell you what I'm grateful for this morning. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I, I, I'm so grateful that Bill Wilson had the God-given instinct to make that 10th phone call. And if you know a little bit about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, he was in the Mayfair Hotel and he made nine phone calls and he couldn't get an alcohol, couldn't get anybody to talk to. And he looked at that bar and he went back to the phone booth and he put that last nickel in, and it connected him with Dr. Bob Smith. And I am so grateful for that because let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but I know about me. If he had not made that connection and got with Dr. Swab Smith, maybe Alcoholics Anonymous wouldn't be here today. And I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably be dead. So I'm grateful for that. And I got a fear. I got a real fear. I was talking to a gentleman last night, and he said he'd been coming to this conference for 24 years. 
And if you'll know time of sitting in this room and you're still active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, please keep coming because I need you here. I need you here. Old-timers, I need, and I'm going to tell you why I need old-timers, because my greatest fear is, I heard somebody say in Alcoholics Anonymous, or somebody told me the other day, said, if you've got five years in this fellowship, you're an old-timer. That's scary. That scares me. So if you're an old-timer, please keep suiting up and showing up, see. My sponsor's got 28 years. My grand sponsor's got 40 years. Yeah, I need that. I need that leadership, and I need that guidance. Because, you see, Bill Wilson said, if we, destruct, if we destroy ourselves, it's going to be from within. And my biggest fear is, is tonight and I get back to Greenville, South Carolina, and I decided to go to my 8 o'clock meeting, or an 8 o'clock meeting, and it's a sign on the door and says, sorry, Alcoholics Anonymous is out of business. Go elsewhere. And say, I need old-timers. I need newcomers. I need everybody to stay involved in this wonderful fellowship. Because I'm like Lee, you know. This is the last stop on the block for a drunk like me last stop. And I'm one of these alcoholics that did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't come here. I ended up here. See? Because God gave me the greatest gift He could ever give a drunk in September of 1983 when I sat in an apartment and I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober and I wanted to live and I wanted to die. He gave me the greatest gift and that was that gift of total desperation. Because, see, I had faced those hideous four horsemen terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And I experienced that, <coughs> excuse me, that loneliness as few as experience. And but for the grace of God, I ended up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. I always get a little nervous before I start my talk. So <clears throat> I had a good friend, and, uh, and I think Dick knows him. I met Dick and, and John this weekend, and they made a lot of good friends. Got to see Charles again this weekend. And, and I knew a guy by the name of Jack L., <clears throat> I mean, Jack S. from Louisville, Kentucky, and he and I used to uh, run into each other at some conferences, and we'd always tell these stories to each other, and, you know, and he'd always say, now, Bob, you know they're true because alcoholics tell them. And, uh, and, uh, <coughs> and I don't know, we were out in Texas or somewhere, and he was telling me this story, I was telling him this, and it goes sort of like this. It was about this newcomer who was getting ready to tell a story for the first time. And, and, and uh, he went to a sponsor, and he said, I can't do it. He says, I just will pass out. He says, I'm nervous. He says, I just I will forget everything. I, I, I just cannot do it. And a sponsor's like my sponsor, knows everything about everything. He said, look. He said, there's a trick to it. And he said, well, what's the trick? He says, look. He says, you get up behind that podium, and you look out in the audience, and he says, you just pick the dumbest, goofiest-looking guy out in the crowd, and you focus in on him. And all of a sudden, he says, the more you look at him and the more you focus in on him, he says, God's going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. God will take over and you'll be able to share your experience, strength, and hope. And the sponsor, he said, will it work? And the sponsor says, absolutely. He says, don't you trust me? And, you know, you've got to trust your sponsor. So he talked to me and sharing the story for the first time. Had a year of sobriety. And, and, uh, and he got up in front of his home group. Had the biggest crowd they ever had. The biggest crowd they ever had. He got up behind the podium and God, he thought he was going to pass out. And he could hardly say his name. He said his name and says, I'm an alcoholic. And he just, oh, God, he went blank. And he looked out in the crowd. And there he sat. The dumbest, goofiest-looking guy you could imagine. And he looked at him. And all of a sudden, he started sharing the story. And he forgot about being nervous. And he forgot about being, you know, screwing up and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, he started sharing this experience, strength, and hope. And it was wonderful. And he kept looking at that guy the whole time he was making his talk. And after he got, <coughs> after he got, excuse me, <coughs> after he got through making his talk, people were coming up to him and said, "Oh, that was wonderful, wonderful God! I mean, it was just thank you very much." 
and uh, and and said that was just a wonderful talk, and, and everybody was just you know hugging him and clapping. I mean you know and carrying on. And, and that old guy he looked at all night long came running up to him and cold cocked him and knocked him flat of his back. And the guy jumped up and he says, "What'd you do that for?" He said, "Was it that bad?" He said, "Hell no, I mean you got the same sponsor." <laughs> so Ricky, if I'm looking at you tonight, son. Don't take it personally, buddy. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's, uh, I love to speak on Sunday mornings because, you know, everybody thinks I'm a spiritual giant, you know, when you get speaking. And i got to tell you, the further away I get from Greenville, you know, the more spiritual I get. And, uh, <clears throat> uh, and I get to speak about my favorite subject for about an hour, and that's me. And uh, <clears throat> I didn't take my first drink until I was 16 years old, but I believe I could have used one when I was in the third grade. And let me tell you why. Because when I was in the third grade, I started looking around what they had and what I had, and they had more. So I grew up in a little, little small town, Manning, South Carolina, population about 3,000. I grew up in a little, little small white frame house, and that was me and Mom. My father left my mom when I was early, or just right after I was born, and I've seen my father probably two or three times in my life, two or three days in my life. And we lived in this little small white frame house, and we didn't have a car, and, and I had to walk to school, and I had the poor me's, I had that low self-esteem, I didn't fit in. You know, you know the feeling that, uh, that everybody, all these speakers have talked about before me. And, 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 I, and I can remember, you know, across the street, you know, and I suffer from a disease of perception, but it just seemed this way for me. Across the, across the street, there was a big old nice house, and they had two cars in the yard. They had six brothers in that family. They had a mother, and they had a father, and they did things together, and, and, and I was always left out, and I was always felt like, you know, I'm less than. Why can't I fit in somewhere? And I can remember I used to have to walk to school. And those cars, they would stop. The people had those automobiles, and they'd say, Bob, don't you want to ride to school? And I'd say, no, no, because I was embarrassed for some reason. And I'd say, no, I'll walk. And they'd ask me again, and because, see, I'm a people pleaser, I'd say, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll ride. And they'd open the back door. And every time I'd slide into the back seat of that car, I just knew I was second class. You know? And I'd get to school, you know, and I'd never fit in with those kids over there. And I tried to make friends, and I just felt like I was on the, always on the outside trying to get in. And, you know, and I was emotionally insecure, and I had that, I had that people-pleasing attitude, and I was full of fear, and I was full of anger. And I, 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 just, I was running around, you know, I was sort of running around like a sprayed roach, you know. You know, how do you, when you spray a roach, you know, you never, you know, and, and, and I just never could fit in. And I can remember in the third grade, Miss Gertrude Rigby, our teacher, she stood up, and she counted, she counted all the students. She said, oh, my goodness, we've got an extra student in here. And I wanted to get up and leave. I wanted to get up and leave because, see, if I got up and left, I knew everything would be okay with them. And then I, I could just get up and leave and go, go live with me. You know? and, 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 and I can remember when I was 12 years old. I went on a date and I kissed this first girl and I don't know what happened. I was just so emotionally unstable. I just bursted out crying, you know. And, and that's silly, you know, and that's silly. But I can tell you this. After I started drinking, I tried to kiss a lot of girls and most of them started crying, you know. And, 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 and all, that's, all that's crazy, you know. But, but that's just how I felt, you know. And, 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 I, and, and it's all about my feelings, you know. I, I can remember, you know, we used to have family meetings. In our house on Sunday afternoon, every Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock. And we give everybody a certain amount of time to talk about how they felt. Not only opinions, but how you felt. And we weren't going to argue, we weren't going to criticize, but we just talked about our feelings. 
And it, it became a healing process in our family, you know. And, and I don't know how I felt the way I felt. I just felt most alcoholics feel that way, you know. I went on, I graduated from high school, and, uh, and at age 16, I, I, Hal Ray and Calvin, they, they came by, and uh, we rode down to the lake, and this was the first drink that I've ever had that I can re- remember. We bought a six-pack of champagne, you know, and uh, I'm sitting in Calvin Shader's back seat again, you know, and, and they passed me back a bottle of champagne, and I popped the top on it, and I drank it, and nothing happened. They passed me back another bottle of champagne, and I popped the top on that, and I drank it, and it happened. I transferred out of that world of reality into that false world of utopia, and I searched for that feeling for the next 26 years. Because, you see, alcohol was my answer. I went on and I graduated from high school, and I went to college. I don't think you know what you think it's some dummy up here talking to you this morning. In fact, I went to college for eight years. And um, majored in introduction, too, you know. And, you know, I didn't go to college to get an education. I went, to college, I went to college to have fun and have a party and to meet her. And we do those things, you know. And I met her. And, 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 and things happened. And we got married. And we had a daughter. And she went on and got her degree. And we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I continued on with my career, which was becoming a full-blown alcoholic. She, became, she, she, she continued with her career. And she got involved in the school system. She got a master's degree. She got a doctor's degree. And she became a, a principal of an elementary school there. And I latched on to a traveling salesman's job, and I recommend that for any alcoholic. You know, it, it gets you a traveling salesman's job. I mean, my God, it's wonderful, you know. And, and I don't want to go through a long drunkalogue this morning. God, we all could match stories. You know, after the meeting, we could match stories about how much we drank, you know. But just let me give you a highlight of my drinking. You know, I became a daily drinker early on. I've had six, seven DUIs, and I've had a federal bankruptcy as a result of my alcoholism. I almost killed a 19-year-old kid in a blackout in 1969 while I was had another man's wife in the car, and I don't even remember it. You know, all these things happened to me. You know, I've abandoned a wife and two kids as a result of my disease. But you know, of all those things that happened to me, I never got up one morning or each morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to drink a quart of booze this morning and go out and get a DUI. I think I'm going, next week, I think I'm going to drink another quart, and I'm going to go out and almost kill a 19-year-old kid. Or I, don't th- I think I'm going to really get into it now and just stay on a drunk for about three months, and so we can go bankrupt. I never planned all those things. Never planned to abandon a wife and a kid, see. See, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a real alcoholic. Once I take that first drink, I can't tell you what my behavior is going to be like. Oh, I can't tell you how much I'm going to drink. People complained about my drinking early on. So they sent me to see psychiatrists. You know, Lee went to one. I went to one. You know, we all go that route. You know, my God, we'll try everything, you know. I'll give you this information free of charge. He charged me $100 for this information. We sat up there for an hour. He talked about his mama. I talked about my mama, you know. And we got through. When we got through, he said, I think I've hit on something here. You've got a low self-esteem. You don't think a lot of yourself. And I said, I could have told you that for nothing. You know, you're not paying you $100 to tell you that. That's what you want me to do about it. He said, go downtown. Buy yourself a new suit of clothes, new shirt, new tie, new everything. And come back to see me next Tuesday. So I said, that sounded like a good idea to me. I went and got good drunk, went downtown, bought a new suit of clothes, new shirt, new tie, new shoes, wrote the man a $400 bad check. <laughs> Never went back to see the psychiatrist, see. Went to see the family doctor, you know. We always try that route, you know. And I went in there, and, and of course, when you drink like I drink, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, you're trying to make that sales call, you know. 
so you can be legitimate that day. You know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, you're running around, you're seeing spots, and you're running off the road, you don't know what's wrong with you. And I went and I told my doctor about it. He said, well, how much do you drink? And I said, a couple. You know, we always drink a couple. And he said, well, I can give you some pills that will make you feel better about yourself. And I said, well, what are they? He said, Elavel. And I said, well, Doc, how long does it take to work? And he said, about seven to ten days. And I thought, I said, that's stupid. i got something in front seat in the car works in less than seven minutes. You know, I didn't need that mess, you know. So, you know, people like me, we don't need to see doctors and psychiatrists. We need to go see veterinarians. You know, we take our cats to see the veterinarians. The veterinarians don't ask what's wrong with them. They feel around, punch around, give them a couple of shots, give them $100, give us a $100 bill, and they well. You know, they could have done the same thing with me. They could have examined me and said, send him to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. But, you know, that's just the way I was. You know, I became a habitual liar. Well, to tell you a lie, to tell you the truth. Lie, cheating, and stealing. And see, one of my big lies was, you know, I'd do anything to make me feel or stand out in the crowd. I always wanted to be a professional football player. And if you get that story down, you can can practice it and tell it certain places and get by with it. And I had that story down. And I'd go in these good old boy bars, you know. You know the kind that, you know, some of them have back doors on them, you know. They just stay open, you know. And I had that lie down, and I'd go in these bars, you know, and be sitting up there at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, and me and the bartender. And and uh, let me tell you my drink of choice, too. <clears throat> I've drank it all, but I finally settled on the, the best drink for an alcoholic, for this alcoholic, was vodka and Gatorade. Yeah, wait a minute. Holly drank vodka and Gatorade. She told me. Yeah, she knows. The real alcoholics drink vodka and Gatorade. Let me tell you that. Drink vodka and Gatorade. And I'm sitting up at those bars, you know, and I'm drinking my vodka. And, and, you know, I may have to go out the car to get Gatorade because bars didn't have them a lot of times. And I'm drinking vodka and Gatorade, you know, and sooner or later they start coming in. Good old boys. We'd sit there and start fellowshipping. Of course, my sponsor calls it BSing, you know. And he'd look over at me and he'd say, now, Hotshot, what do you do? And I said, well, since I've retired, I'm a traveling salesman. And he said, well, uh, <clears throat> what did you used to do? And I said, well, I used to be a professional football player. God, you tell that in the South, they just light up. <laughs> they just light up. Boy, I mean, they love it. They'll slap you on the back, buy you a couple of drinks, and you're off and running. And I had that lie down so good, it was wonderful. I was in Atlanta, Georgia one night. And I forget the bar over on the south side of the town over there around the around where the airport used to have all those bars around there. I was telling that lie and like, guy sitting on <clears throat> this side of me, guy sitting over there where Don's sitting, and uh, I was laying it on him. And the guy kept looking at me over there, doing saying a word. And finally I got through, and he looked over, and he said, pardon me, he said, I've been listening to you talk to this guy here about you used to be a professional football player. He said, where did you say you played? I said, New York, New York Giants. He said, when did you play? And I said, early 60s, 62 through 68. And it got dead quiet. And I knew it was getting ready to come down. He said, you know, I lived in New York from 1959 to 1972. And he said, I had season tickets to New York Giants. And he said, I never missed a home game. He said, what position did you play? Well, we're not stupid. Our cars are crazy, but I'll tell you, we ain't stupid. I thought real quick. He, I said, he won't remember this. I said, I was a defensive back. And it got just as quiet as it is in this room right here. He said, you know, I was there the Sunday afternoon. You intercepted a pass and ran it back for a touchdown. (laughs) 
I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he knew I was lying, and I knew he knew I was lying, but he drank free the rest of the night, I guarantee you. Now, now let me tell you, we had a guy, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was chair of the meeting one night, and Jim L., the guy I sponsored, was sitting in the back of the room back there, and this newcomer came in by the name of Frank W., and Frank was sitting next to Jim. And he punched Jim, and he said, Jim, he said, you know Bob up there? And Jim said, yeah, that's Bob McKinney. And Frank said, yeah, I know. He's played professional football. <laughs> so you have to be careful where you may tell those lies. You have to make amends to your home group, you know, and that's pretty embarrassing. But I'd do anything. You know, I'd do anything. You know, I, I picked up with some other habits along the way that I'm certainly not proud of, and uh, I'll leave that to my fifth step. And that's uh, gambling and, and womanizing, and, and you know what we do. Always had money problems. Maybe y'all can identify with those. Always in financial straits. Yeah. But I had one. Maybe you had one. Enabler. Caretaker. Yeah, and I'm ashamed to say, not today, but I was ashamed to say back then, that my caretaker was my mother. I'd pick up the phone and I'd call Mom down in Manning. I'd say, Mom, I said, this, this is Bob. I'll be down through Manning next week. Love to see you. She said, come on by, son. Love to have you. I'd go through Manning next week. She'd fix me that little lunch, you know, and we'd sit in that little old white frame house that she was so proud of and I was ashamed of. And I'd say, Mom, uh, she'd ask me, she'd say, well, how are things going with you and the kids and why? And I'd say, well, not so good, Mom. I said, you know, we're having some financial problems. And I said, I just can't seem to make ends meet. And I said, do you think you could help me out a little bit? And she'd say, well, how much do you need, son? And I'd say, how about $500? She said, Bob, that's a lot of money. And I said, well, Mom, I'm going to pay you back. And she'd take that checkbook, she'd write it out, Bobby McKinney, that's what she called me, $500. I'd stand in that doorway of that little old house, and I'd hug my mom, and I'd tell her how much I loved her. And, and I'd say, don't you worry, I'll pay you back. And I'd go up to the back of Clarendon. Old Bootsy, who I graduated from high school with, she worked up there, and I'd give her that check, and I'd say, Bootsy, would you cash this for me? She'd say, sure, hi, Bob, how do you want it? And I'd say, give me big bills, because you see, I'm a big shot, see? And she'd count those, start counting those bills out, and she'd give me a 50, she'd give me a 100. And all of a sudden, she'd look up at me, and she'd say, Bob, how's your mom doing? And I'd say, Mom's doing fine, thank you. She'd count out another bill, and she'd look me straight in the eye, and she said, how's Bob doing? And see, I hated it when she did that, because you see, I knew that she knew. And I'd take that money and I'd put it in my pocket and I'd walk outside and I don't know about you, but I'd always had this guilt cloud that followed me all my life. And that guilt cloud would just hover over me and, and, I, and I'd say, my God, what are you turning into? But see, i got an answer for guilt. And it's right on the outside of town. They got a little old liquor store out there and they got a little convenience store. And I'd stop out there and I'd get that bottle of vodka and I'd get those couple of cans of Gatorade and I'd start back on the way to Charlotte where we lived at the time. And I'd start pulling on that vodka and I'd take a couple of drinks of vodka and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the thought would come to me. I'd start doing what I think is the most dangerous thing an alcoholic can do is start drinking and thinking, <laughs> planning and scheming. You want to have a laugh? catch you a newcomer when they come into the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and say, after the meeting tonight, newcomer, let's go out and have a cup of coffee and I want you to tell me your plans. <laughs> Never seen a newcomer yet and get hit and have plans. So I'm drinking and thinking and scheming. And now after a couple of drinks, I say, you know, now's the time, now is the time for me to start being a better son to my mom. Take a couple more drinks. And I said, you know, now's the time for me to start being a better husband than my wife. 
Man, I'm getting rolling now. Take a couple more drinks. I'm going to be a better father to those kids. By God, I, you know, I'm going to quit giving them lessons in drunk driving when I take them out to eat on the weekend. You know, I'm going to straighten up. Take a couple more drinks. And I said, you know, I work for this company. And by God, I'm going to really work and just really do good. couple more drinks. I'm going to get man of the year in North Carolina. Man, and I'm rocking and rolling. But you see, I'm a blackout drinker. Two, three days later, I come to and God knows where, but God knows who. No money. Broke. Shaking to pieces. Coming apart at the seams. I drag out of that bed in that flea bag motel and I go look in the mirror and I look like 10 miles of worn out road. And I said, my God, can't you see what you're doing to yourself? And I'd look around and I'd find that old bottle that had a little bit left in it and I'd pull it out and I'd try to keep get a couple of drinks down and after I got a couple of drinks down, I'd walk by and I'd look in that mirror and I'd say, you know, it's not that quite, quite that bad yet. And I'd run that drunk out to where I couldn't call anybody else and I couldn't borrow any more money and that people were just fed up with me. And then I would do the thing that I like to call, so start singing the AA National Anthem. We call her. We call her. And I'd say, honey, I don't know what's wrong with me. I must be under a lot of stress. I'm depressed. I feel down all the time. But I'll tell you what. If you'll let me come home one more time, just one more time, I'll straighten up. And I'll be a father to those kids. And I'll be a husband to you. And I'll never do this again. If you'll let me come back one more time. See, my wife came from, my first wife came from a... <coughs> from an alcoholic family. And I'm not here, certainly not here to tell her story. But she didn't know any better. And I could almost feel the pain in her heart and see the tears coming down her cheek. And that dead silence on the other end was some of the most horrible feelings I've ever had in my life. Because I knew what I was and I knew who I was and I knew I could not do anything about it. And finally she would come back and say those magic words. Do you promise? I'll promise you anything. Because I'm an alcoholic. I'd go back home two or three months later and I've sort of got over that drunk. I'm back out rocking and rolling again. Back into the same situation. Mom, you'll be through many next week. Love to see you. Come on down, son. Love to have you. How about 700, Mom? 900, Mom? 1,300, Mom? 1,800, Mom? 3,000, Mom? 1,000, Mom? How about $7,000? This time, it's going to be different. The height of my mother's earning career, she might have made ten, eleven thousand dollars $11,000 as a nurse at Clarendon Memorial Hospital. And I'm draining her. And I stood in that doorway every time with every fiber on my body and said, this time it's going to be different. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. I paid her back. We pay back. July of 1981, I got a phone call. She said, will you come down? She says, Dr. King wants to put me in the hospital. She says, doctor, she'd worked with all these years. She said, I don't think there's anything serious, but she said, would you come down? She says, I want you to take care of some business for me. Well, I got a resentment. Because, see, the root of my problem is selfishness and self-centeredness, just like our book tells us. She wanted me to do something for her. So I go down to Manning, and I go by that little house, and where she has a telephone on a little table there, on one side of the t telephone was a was a <clears throat> funeral plans, burial plans. On the other side was her will. And I said, "Hey, something serious here." 
I went out to the hospital to make a long story short. Dr. King met me out there and he said, Bob, he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your mother's got the, one of the worst kinds of cancer that she could ever have and it's in the stomach. So I don't think we could do anything about it except <clears throat> give her heavy medication to keep the pain down until she dies. My mom stayed in that hospital 28 days. One day I was in that room with her. And she came out of that deep medication, that deep sleep she was in because of the medication. And I was sitting in that chair, and she called me over to her bed. And she took, she said, son, she says, I want to ask you a question. She said, and I sat on the edge of the bed, and she took my hands, and she put it between her two hands, and she looked up with all the love that a mother could have for her son. And she said, I just want you to know I know the end's near, and that's okay. Because I'm not afraid to die. Because, you see, my mom had found her God in the Manning Methodist Church where she had taken me all those years. She said, that's okay. She said, but I just want to ask you one favor. Sure, Mom, anything. She said, will you stay here with me? Will you stay here with me until it's over? Sure, no problem. I'll be right here. My mom slipped in that sleep. And before she did, she looked and she said, I love you, son. I sat down in that chair started thinking. You know, I can walk outside and I can have one or two drinks and I'll slip back in here. I can hear that telephone ringing right now in that flea bag motel that I passed out here. And that nurse was saying, you better get here and you better get here quick because your mother's going. When I got back to that hospital the next morning at 6.30 a.m., my mom had left this life and she'd gone to that next life and she'd gone alone. I had become so hateful and so mean and so angry at God and everybody, at everybody, that I buried my poor mom the next day and I could not shed one tear. One tear. Two weeks later, I abandoned a wife in Charlotte, North Carolina with two children and came to Greenville, South Carolina. And this is the beginning of the end for me. A friend of mine who I called on <clears throat> as a customer, he fixed me up with this blind date one night. And I swung that door open at Woodbridge Apartments, and that stood the most gorgeous thing I'd ever laid my eyes on. I knew she was good-looking. She thought I was rich, and we fell in sick right there. <clears throat> First night we went out, my God, I said, I have died and gone to heaven. Not only is she beautiful, she can drink just like me. We stayed out all night long. You know, you know how that talk goes. God, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? Shortly thereafter, we moved in together. And we lived together for three years. Norman Rockwell has got a wonderful way of painting the American dream. A little white house with the picket fence, two dogs, two kids, mom and dad. You've seen those pictures. I wish Norman Rockwell could paint a picture of the disease of alcoholism. Because let me tell you what it would look like in that apartment for, that, for the next three years. Liv had a little boy by a previous marriage, and his name's Rob. Rob's four years old. I don't like him, and he don't like me. And the reason I don't like him because he's there. That little boy might get up in the mornings, and he may walk in, and I'm passed out on the living room floor. Sometimes i got clothes on, sometimes I don't. That little boy seen me jerk telephones out of the wall, sling them across. He seen me curse. He seen me yell. He seen me scream. He seen me run his mom and mom up and down that uh, drive, uh, parking lot outside uh, in a blackout, screaming and cursing her out. Fifteen minutes later, I got him in a pizza hut somewhere, telling him I love him. 
That little old boy seen us one Christmas Eve when I got in a fight and I came in and I had blood all over me and the cops were outside with the blue lights going. Everybody's going crazy. That little old boy opened his mom's bedroom door early one morning about 8 o'clock and he caught us in a very compromising position and you know what I mean. Now let me tell you how four-year-olds react to that. Every night about 2.30 a.m. you can hear those blood-curdling screams coming from his room. He's having nightmares. And I jump up because, you see, I'm around the clock drinking at about 2.30 a.m. in the morning. That's when I need to stop that screaming madness for me because, you see, I'm jerking. And I'd jerk, jump up and I'd run down to that room and I'd open that door and I'd say, Shut up! Why can't you go back to sleep? What are you doing? And he'd be standing there and he'd take his fist and he'd just be fighting out like he's trying to... like a wounded animal. I mean, you know, like he's fighting a demon or something. And this went on night after night after night after night. So if you don't believe anything you've heard any speaker say this weekend, please believe this. Please believe this. You don't have to drink alcohol to suffer from alcoholism. Because you see, that little old boy has never had a drink before in his life. He's never had a drink before in his life. He and I suffer from the same disease. But you see, I've got a way to get relief. He doesn't. This goes on for three years. September the 12th. This was the end. Lib, leaves, <coughs> Lib says, would you go, I'm going to take he and his little friends out to a skating rink tonight. Would you get him a birthday cake? Now, I'll promise you anything. Sure, I'll go get him a cake. I'll come back. I came through that afternoon. and There's a note on the kitchen counter that night sometime. And it said, get out of our lives. You will never treat us this way again. I want you gone. You will never do this again. You will never do this again. Well, like I say, we're not stupid. We know we've done something. And to make a long story short, what I'd done was, and she tells a lot better in her story, she came to, she came home and she'd uh, taken Rob down to the family mart to get him a, uh, a birthday cake, and then I'd followed him down there, and we had this gosh awful fight, and I, and this, I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a, it was a bad scene, and, and that night. <clears throat> I knew that I was in trouble. I knew I was going to be kicked out. I knew I wasn't going to have a place to stay. But here again, I knew that they were going out to the skating rink. And I said, you know, now it's time for me to do something nice for that little boy. He loved fire trucks. Well, it's 9 o'clock at night. And I can't. I'm too drunk to go get a fire truck. Buy him one. So I picked up the phone called 911, Greenville Fire Department. <laughs> told him who I was. Told him where I lived. And I said, I want you to get the biggest fire truck you've got. Come over here. Pick me up. We're going to go out to the skating rink. We're going to put these six or seven young boys on the, on the back of this fire truck. We're going to ride them around town a couple of times. You blow the siren every now and then. And I said, that's going to be my gift to this little old boy on his seventh birthday. And I said, I tell you what, partner, if you do that for me, I'm going to donate $1,000 to the Greenville Fire Department. And it got dead quiet. And I said, you know, that fool's going to do it. He came back and told me what I could do with my $1,000, and I told him what he could do with his fire truck. <laughs> I ain't paid the rent in two months. Now, I'm going to loan him a thousand, give him a thousand dollars. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why it did it for me. That, that did it for me. Because I'd done a lot of other crazier things, like left home one Christmas and, and, and went and stayed and gone for three, three weeks in Miami. You know? I don't know why. I walked in that room and I sat down. And that's when God gave me that gift, that gift of total desperation. I'm drinking a quart, I mean a half a gallon of vodka on a daily basis. And I'm crazy. And I can't get drunk, and I can't get sober, and I want to live, and I want to die. 
And I said, God, is there not another way? Is there not another way? And when Liv came home, I said, please, get me help. Get me help. And she said, thank God. They had already been talking about me. They meaning you know who. My boss and a few other people. She said, you need to call Lewis, your boss, in the morning. He's already, <clears throat> he needs, he's waiting on your phone call. I said, I'll do anything. Got up next morning. I said, you know, we don't need to overreact to this. I said, uh, let's just take a few minutes to talk this thing. She said, you call or you out of here. I picked up the phone and I called Lewis and I said, Lewis, you know, and I'm trying to run that con job one more time. And let me tell you what my dear friend Lewis said. I love him like a brother today. Let me tell you what he said. Nothing. Dead silence. See, if you argue with me, I can get you down on my playing level. You don't say anything, I'm in deep trouble. Finally, he came back to me and he said, Bob, because I care about you, my co our company cares about you, he said, I've made arrangements to put you in a hospital down here. And he said, I'm on the way to come get you. I said, oh, Lewis, how long is that going to take? He said, 28 days. I said, my God, run this territory up here. He said, Bob, you ain't worked in two years. He said, 28 days ain't going to matter. He said, in fact, last time we sent you to Charleston, you almost ran over a hitchhiker, a hitchhiker in Columbia. He said, God, he picked you up. I mean, he got in the car and drove you to Columbia and got you. I mean, to Charleston got you a motel room. He said, I promise you, 28 days ain't going to matter. <laughs> Man. September the 16th, 1983. They put this drunk in the back seat of a car. But it's hopefully his last half a gallon of vodka and his last bottle of Gatorade and dumped me in Peachwood Hospital. And i got to tell you, that's the best thing that will happen to this storm. But it wasn't for the first, that first two weeks there. Because, see, they got a place they put you. And let me tell you that place that they put you. First of all, they put you in a bed and they strap you down. And they give you this stuff to drink. And they shoot you with all these shots. And then when they strap you down, it's almost like they put you in this room and it's got snakes in it, and it's got alligators in it, and it's got purple buffalo, and it's got yellow monkeys, and it's got spiders that are six feet tall, and it's got this big old hole in the middle that somebody's always pushing you in it. And you yell, and you scream, and you go crazy for about 10 to 12 days. And that's what happens when you go to DT's and when you go to Peachford Hospital when you drink a half a gallon of vodka on a daily basis for about a year. Of course, when I get out of there, they had the audacity to put me over there with those drunks. And the first thing I start to do is start whining. You know, you know, you know, you take a drunk and a dog and you let them inside of a house, 15 minutes later, the dog will quit whining. You know? I'm whining. I'm complaining, you know? And I get a roommate, you know, and he's almost a wet break. And we go down to one morning in, in, in a room about not quite this big, and 75 of us patients sitting in there. And this little old doctor gets up behind the podium. He said, my name's Dr. Bill C. He said, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. He said, I now work in this treatment center. I got 18 months of sobriety. He said, I'm going to explain the disease of alcoholism to you. If you want to listen, fine. And if you don't, don't want to listen, he said, I really don't give a damn. I said, oh, my kind of man. Mean and arrogant. He said, you know alcoholism is a disease? I sort of put my head down. He passed out those questions, those, John, those 44 questions. He said, I want you to answer these to the best of your ability. True, false, true, false. I'd answered all of them, <clears throat> yes, except one. Come out later, I'd lied about that one. 
He said, ladies and gentlemen, if you've answered uh, no, he, uh, no, he said, uh, I said yes to one of them. He said, if you've answered yes to two of those questions, he said, you're probably an alcoholic. If you've answered yes to three or more of those uh, questions, he said, you're definitely an alcoholic. And he said, there's good news and bad news. He said, the bad news is you're an alcoholic and you're going to die an alcoholic. He said, the good news is you can die sober. I looked down there, the one I had answered yes to, and I had to deal with something like this. Has alcohol ever been a deterrent in your sex life? And I said, hey, no. <laughs> I told Lib how I'd answer that. She laughed for three weeks after we got out of prison. <laughs> he went on and he explained this horrible disease to us. He talked about my character defects, and I threw in a couple others. And he talked about our chemical imbalance. And he talked about, you know, once we reach a point and, you know, all this stuff, we can't stop drinking on our own. But he made a statement that I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, ladies and gentlemen, only you can determine whether you're an alcoholic. He said, if you're an alcoholic, if you're an alcoholic, you need to decide how you want to die. you got a choice. You could die drunk or you could die sober. And for some reason, I did not want to die drunk. And then he threw in that kicker. He started talking about BBAA. <laughs> I said, no, no. Because I'd been to one of those stupid meetings up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Some guy got up behind the podium and told my story, and I made fun of him. Yeah. Talking about running around on his wife, writing bad checks, getting in jail, writing, getting DUIs, doing this, doing that, doing this, and I laughed at him. Some guy got up and took a, <clears throat> a chip and a cake for celebrating one year. And you know what my thoughts were? If I don't drink liquor for one year, they're going to give me more than a cake. I'll tell you that. We're going to have a party big time. I walked out, the guy said, come back, I love you. And I said, yeah, right. No way. He talked about a God of his understanding. You know, we talk about a God of our understanding in here. I like to refer to it as like this. I know I've got a God of my understanding, but I am so grateful that i got a God that understands me. He told me we needed to get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I sort of crawled back that room that morning and I got on my knees and I uttered that prayer that I think every person in this room has uttered. God help me. Went to group therapy, whatever that is, that afternoon. And when it came my turn to share, I said, my name's Bob and I'm an alcoholic. And I lost it. They didn't laugh. They didn't make fun of me. And Seal, one of the counselors, she walked up to me after that session was over. And she said, I think you can get sober now, Bob. And I said, why? She said, because you're beginning to get honest. She said, that's the first key. You've got to get honest. She said, every morning you go look in that mirror and you get those H's and put them in those eyeballs and get those L's out of there and you can get sober. I stayed in that treatment center for two or three more days. I mean, two or three more weeks. And I came out of there and I convinced that I needed to go to AA. But I was not convinced that Alcoholics Anonymous was going to work for me. So I went to 9,485 meetings that first year running for Rookie of the Year. Whew. Man, I'm telling you. I walked in those rooms and I BS my way through. The first, I'm going to tell you what the first thing I saw says, fake it till you make it. And I said, you got it. I can do that. And I faked it. I picked up my first year chip, got up from my so-called home group and just lied and cried. Oh, thank you so much for helping me grow. God, God Almighty. <laughs> Two months later, I'm sitting outside of a meeting, wanting to drink real bad, getting ready to go drink. And a guy by the name of Jason sat in the front seat of my car, and he brought me the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, Bob, how you doing? You know how we're doing right before we're getting ready to get drunk. Fine. 
fine. He said, you just celebrated a birthday, didn't you? I said, yep, got 14 months. He said, yeah. He said, the chips have run out, hadn't they? I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, they don't give you a chip 14 months. He said, they don't give you a chip for 16 months. They give you a chip. You can make another 10 months. They give you another birthday chip. He said, probably anybody can stay dry for a year. He said, man, that's the second year when you really start getting into the program, if you're serious. I said, what are you talking about, Jason? He said, let me tell you what I'm talking about with you, Bob. He said, I've been in a lot of meetings with you. He said, there's two kind of people who come to Alcoholics Anonymous, walkers and talkers. He said, you one heck of a talker, Bob. He said, walkers make it, talkers don't. He said, why don't you go home and read chapter 5 in the big book? Chapter 5, my God, they have read how it worked at every meeting that I've been. If you can't get in after two or three readings, forget it. Man, I mean, that was one of the things I was going to do away with when I came one of your, became one of your twisted leaders, was we were going to do away with all these reads. We were going to jump right in and talk, start talking about issues. <laughs> he said, you go home and read chapter 5. I went home and I found the big book and I wiped the dust off of it and opened it to chapter 5. First sentence has stayed in my mind from that night to this very moment, and it says, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Not led, not rationalized, not justified. Followed our path. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I got serious about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That old guy up there in Greenville, his name was Sterling. I didn't like him because he was loud, and he was always happy. I'm a happy alcoholic. My name's Sterling. <laughs> yeah, right. You call this house today, and he says, This is Sterling. He says, Have yourself a good day unless you decide otherwise. <clears throat> I said, My God, who is this man? This, this was a God thing. He was speaking at the Alamo Club one night. No, he was speaking. I'm sitting back and saying, Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And after the meeting... I just had to run into him. I said, I enjoyed your talk. Would you be my sponsor? <laughs> he said, I've been waiting on you. <laughs> Let me tell you about my sponsor, and I'm going to move on here. <clears throat> Let me tell you what my sponsor did for me. He taught me the difference between commitment and convenience. He went me through, he took me through this big book. He said, what did they tell you in that fancy medicine treatment center? He said, read the first 164 pages. I said, yeah. He said, if you want to read the first 164 pages, he said, you're going to miss one of the most important parts in that book. And I said, what's that? He said, Dr. Bob's story. And I said, oh. He said, that starts on page 165. He said, they tell you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days? And I said, yep. He said, what are you doing on the 91st day? He said, you go to meetings as long as you drink. And I said, how long was that? I said, 26, 27 years. He said, you go to a meeting every day. He said, you drank every day. I said, yeah. But I said, but, you know, these meetings last about two hours. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, about 30, about 30 minutes before the meeting, 30 minutes after the meeting, about two hours a day out of your busy schedule, he said. He said, let me tell you something, hot shot. He said, if you didn't drink alcohol but two hours a day, you probably wouldn't be in these rooms. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. I question y'all. For every one of you didn't drink alcohol but two hours a day, remain seated. I don't see anybody leaving. Two hours a day, man. Inferred my TV time. God, TV time. Let me tell you the TV I used to watch. When they used to raise the flag, you know, at 12 o'clock, Ima Jima, I'd be sitting there drunk and crying. 
God, tomorrow it's going to be wonderful. You know, God, it's going to be great tomorrow. He told me it's 571 pages in the big book of Alcoholics Numbers, and he said, Bob, you on every page. I said, Sterling, why do I need a sponsor? He said, very simple. He said, sponsors see what you don't show them, and they we hear what you don't tell us. He said, that's exactly why, because you see, I'm a con artist. I said, well, how do you know if you're a good sponsor and you're a good member of AA? He said, that's simple, too. He said, how many times is your telephone ringing? Telephone in our house rings a lot, thank God. But he said, if your telephone is not ringing, Bob, you better take a look at your program. And that man took me through these steps. And he told me those first three steps are the giving up steps. Those next three steps are the owning up steps. Those next three steps are the payback steps. And the last three are the growing up steps. And he took me through, step by step. And we got on that, our knees and we prayed that third step together. And he said, you know, Bob, whatever you do the rest of your life after you take this third step, it's none of your business if you mean it. You know, and I've taken third steps all my life. But before I got to Alcott's and Arms, you know what my third step was? I make a, made a decision every day to turn my will and my life over care of alcohol as I needed it. And I never knew what the results were. Today, when I take that third step, I still don't know what the results are. But see, I turned over to God instead of alcohol. We went through that fourth and fifth step, and I had that thing out, and God, it was dynamite. You know, I mean, that fifth step was going to blow him away. He went to sleep. <laughs> I reminded him of that, and he said, well, if you ain't done it on the moon or with a laser beam, most of them are the same. And he's right. I've listened to I don't mean how many fifth steps, and we've all done it. It's just different circumstances. But then came the hard part for me. He said, you got to make those amends, Bob. I had to go back to Charlotte, North Carolina, made amends to a lady who'd given me 20 years of her life. She'd raised those children. She'd been faithful. She'd been loyal. And I had treated her very, 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 very badly. And I made those amends. In our big book, it says that nine times out of ten, the unexpected is going to happen. And it happened that day. It happened that day. She looked at me after I got through. And she said, Bob, I'm going to forgive you. She said, but I need to ask you a question. She said, why couldn't you find God that you talk about an Alcoholics Anonymous while we were still together? And I couldn't answer that. Why didn't you get here two weeks, two months, two years before you did? And I, I went back home and I told Sterling, I said, I feel like I got off on probation. I feel like, I, I just, I feel guilty. And he said, well, if God's forgiven you and you've forgiven you, and if God's forgiven you and she's forgiven you, then you've got to forgive yourself. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it for some reason. Two years later, I'm carrying this guilt around with me. And I'm in Johnson City, Tennessee. And I'd gone to a meeting. And I came back to my room and I said, God, I don't know what to do here. But I've got to do something. If I don't, I'm afraid I'm going to drink. And I sat down that night and I wrote her about a 15-page letter. And I explained in detail every horrible, despicable thing I'd ever done to she and our two daughters. And I put it in an envelope and I put it on a desk and I went to sleep. And I got up next morning and I did my prayer and my meditation. And I'm walking out that door. And I see that letter on that desk. And I walked over to it and I tore it in half and I threw it in the trash can. And I have not looked back since. And that's what it took for me. That's what it took for me. And I think what God said to me is, Bob, you've got to live this amends before that guilt's going to relieve you. 
and I had to live it for a while. And that other bigger man I had to make, you know who that was to. That was to my mom. That was to my mom. I went down, it was around her birthday, and I'd been sober about three years. <clears throat> I went down to Manning, and she's buried out in this little beautiful country setting. Norman Rockwell ought to pay a picture of that. Beautiful little country setting. And I went out there that morning, that spring morning, and I'm telling you, I was scared to death. And I went over to my mom's grave. And I didn't know what to say. And I said, the only thing that I knew to I started to tell my mom what I had been like, what had happened to me, and what I was trying to be like today. And I asked for that forgiveness. And that's the easiest amend I've ever had to make. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you see in our big book it says, deep down in every man, woman, and child, the fundamental idea of God exists. And it seems to me, when I'm closest to my God, I'm childlike. And I knew that morning I was a child of God. And if I was a child, I know without a shadow of a doubt, mothers forgive little boys. And I walked off that graveyard a free man. And as a part of my living amends to her, I put flowers in her church, and I put flowers on that grave. And periodically I'll stop by there and I'll bring Mom up to date on what's going on in my life. And sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry. And that's okay because Alcoholics Anonymous told me it's okay for grown men to cry. What's my life like today? Oh, boy, back home says it better than I've ever heard. He says, my life's fantastic, but nothing great ever happens. <laughs> now, that's AA talk. You go tell other people that, and they'll look at you. It says in our book, it says if we draw close to God, he says great events are going to count, happen to us and countless others. I'm going to talk to you a few minutes about the great events in our life, and then we're going to go home. And then we're going to go to a meeting tonight, right? Yeah. And pray God that the doors are not closed. Now, because now I'm still in business. Some of the great events have happened in my life. Yeah. It took my oldest daughter. I made amends to my oldest daughter. And it took her nine years to accept my amends. Susan. She finally wrote me a letter, and she said, Dear Dad, she said, I just want to let you know that I finally come to peace with you and your new life and I've come to come to peace and I want to forgive you for what you did to my mom and to my sister and to myself and she went on for three or four pages and told me what I had done you know. but she said I want you to know that I forgive you and I love you forgive you and I love you July the 31st 17, seven years ago at exactly 8.55 a.m. she gave this man this alcoholic this recovered alcoholic one of the greatest gifts that a man can receive. And that was my first grandchild, Eddie. She was born at 8.55 a.m. And the reason I know that is because I was sitting in a meeting, 11-step meeting at Lawrence Road Group <coughs> at that Sunday morning. That Sunday afternoon, I flew up to Raleigh, North Carolina to meet my first, see my first grandchild. The man that met me at the airport to take me to see my first grandchild was Hal Ray, the man I took my first drink with. He's seven years sober in the fellowship program of Alcoholics Anonymous. On the way over there, I said, Harold, how do I, <clears throat> how do I act? He said, Bob, he said, act like a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She never has to see you take a drink as long as you live. 
we got over that hospital and they pulled back those curtains and that precious God gift from God looked up at me and she opened her eyes and she screamed and she spit up and I identified right there. <laughs> since then, since then, she has given us a grandson. His name's Austin. He's four years old and he's a girl from God. But let me tell you what's so important. About three years ago, they were home at Christmas. And we were sitting around at Christmas that night after everybody had gone and everybody was sort of winding down. And Susan and I were all sitting in the living room living everybody. And she looked up at us and she said, Look, she said, If anything ever happens to Andy and myself, she says, Would you please take Austin and Eddie and raise them because we want them to have what you have. And she looked at me and she looked at Liv and she says, that's not a tribute to y'all. That's a tribute to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. What goes around comes around. Kelly, 11, 12 years ago, she was drunk, getting drunk and wrecking cars at the University of South Carolina. It's my youngest daughter. So we made a decision. I went and talked to Sterling, and he told me, he said, you know what you got to do. So I went down there one that cold winter afternoon, and Liv and I, and we got her out of bed and <clears throat> sat her down in that apartment. And we said, because I told her that with all the love that I could muster for a father to his daughter, I said, <clears throat> Kelly, because I think you're a lot like your dad. I said, we're going to take you out of here. You're going to come live with us for one year. And I said, after that, you can be on your own. But during that year, you're going to go see some friends of ours. And she looked up at me and she said, My God, Alcoholics Anonymous, my life's over. My life's over. June the 16th this past year, by God's grace in the program of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I presented my daughter with her 10-year chip. Her life is far from over. <clears throat> She got married to a drunk about three years ago. Of course, first thing I'm thinking about, my God, this thing's going to cost me out on an arm and a leg, and it did because Lib was in charge and she was in charge, and they spending money, and oh, Lord, I'm retired, and oh, God, I went and complained to Sterling. You know how we do. He looked at me, and he said, shut up. I don't want to hear it. He said, that's part of your men's to her. Don't you utter another word, and I didn't. And we had a great time, and it was a great wedding, and it was an AA wedding. And let me tell you something. If you don't think Alcoholics Anonymous works, let me tell you something. In my family, we got 56 years of sobriety. And the miracle of that is 18 years ago, we did not have one day, and that's four of us. Because he, her husband, six years sober in this fellowship. Then there's Rob. Liv talked to you about Rob. He's my movie star. He's 24 years young, and I love him like a rainbow. He got in trouble and he's in the army. And I got that phone call. And he said, Bob, he said, I need to ask you something. He said, when you drank, he said, the next day, he said, did you feel guilty? I said, yep. He said, when you drank, he said, did you sometimes not remember what went on the night before? And I said, yep. He said, when you drank, he said, did you always have a lot of fear? And I said, yep. He said, I do too. I said, well, Rob, i tell you what, bud, because I love you. 
I can head you in the right direction, but I can't help you, son. Because I love you to death. And I said, you know where you need to go? And he said, I know. And he went to some meetings. But he's out of the army, and I still think he's probably maybe getting ready for these rooms. I'm not here to judge. But you just got to pray for him, and I hope you're here for him when he comes. But he's a great guy, and he's got God in his life. And if he is one of us, then so be it. So be it. And then there's Liv. Liv and I got married nine months in this program. Things went okay for the first year, like she said. After that first year, all our character defects started surfacing. One thing led to another. We yelling and screaming and carrying on. I went to Sterling and I said, I want to divorce her. I want to leave her. And I said, she's crazy. And he said, yeah, both of you are. <clears throat> he says, what's new? He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you can leave her and you can divorce her, but you're going to have to do it the AA way. And I said, what's the AA way? He said, the AA way is, is, he said, you go back and you do a morning prayer meditation with her for one year and you come back. And he says, if you want to leave her and you want to divorce her, he said, then that's fine. We'll do that. I went home and I told Liv, and I said, Sterling said, and Sterling says it's so like E.F. Hudson says, you know. <laughs> and she said, okay. So we sat down that morning, the next morning, and we read out of 24-hour book, whatever. Mumbled a prayer. She mumbled a prayer. After a couple of weeks, I noticed that my hand slid over the table, and she was holding my hand. We were praying. Two or three weeks later, I noticed we saw it. We're sliding down on my knees and we're praying. Next thing I knew, Rob was joining us at the table. And it went that way for many, many years until he left. But you see, Liv and I pray together every day. Every day. We prayed together before we came over here. Third step prayer. And you know, my prayers are getting real short now because you see, and I love what Stephanie said last yesterday. It ain't about me. And I just say, God, what do you want me to do today? I say, show me. Just show me. And at night I say thank you. Because, see, I used to have these long list of prayers that I would pray for. And, you know, that's so silly for alcoholics like me because, you see, God knows what I need. He knows what I need. Gosh, if He gave me what I wanted, Lord have mercy. He gave me mercy. He didn't give me justice. He gave me mercy. Six more inches to the left and I would have been in prison like like our friend Lee was. Because I came within 16, six inches of killing a 19-year-old kid one night. See? And our marriage has been fantastic ever since. You know, I love her. She's my soulmate. She's my best friend. And we have a house. We have an AA home. Let me tell you about an AA home. The AA home is, is the telephones are connected. We've got seven of them. We've got two numbers. The mailboxes are empty. The beds are made. The floors are clean. Mother is one word in our house today. <laughs> God, God does not have a last name. And there's a lot of love. There's a lot of laughter. And there's a lot of living that goes on in that house. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're not laughing and you're not loving and you're not living in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, then you're missing the boat. Because that's what it's all about. It ain't about drinking. It's about learning to live without drinking. 
We all know how to drink for God's sakes. It's about not drinking. And we have a wonderful life. I always like to close with this little story so we all can go home. One of my amends that I had to make was uh, to a man that I had borrowed money from. I had borrowed this money from him for over <clears throat> 30 years. He loaned me some money to buy a car. And I went to Sterling. I said, Sterling, I said, I owe this man some money. I said, but, you know, I said, I really want to pay him. And I said, I'm sure he's forgotten it. And I said, there's probably no need. And he said, no, he hadn't. Call him. He said, he hadn't forgotten it. So I picked up the phone. It was Christmas. I forget, five, six, seven, eight years ago, whenever. And I called this boy, this friend of mine, his name was Carl. And I said, Carl, I said, uh, I'm going to be through town next couple of days. And I said, uh, I'd like to see you. And I said, uh, uh, if you could meet me, I said, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, yeah. He said, I, I'm overseer of a farm out here, which tells you he, he, he doesn't make a lot of money. And, uh, and he said, I just run this farm out here for, for, for Mr. Eaton. And uh, I said, fine. So I, I met him out there. And uh, and uh, we sat in the front seat of the car, and it was about a week before Christmas. And, uh, and I said, Carl, I owe you some money. And he said, yeah, I know. And uh, he, he did. And, and I said, uh, I owe you this amount. He said, yeah, uh, that's right. And I said, I'll be glad to pay you interest. And he said, no, that's fine. And I counted the money out to him, and I gave it to him. And uh, when we got through, <clears throat> I said, uh, uh, I said, how are things going with you? And he said, things are going real well. He said, you know, Bob, he said, I just kind of always figured you'd pay me at the right time. I said, yeah, it being Christmas and everything. He said, no. He said, that, no, that's not it. He said, you know, I've sort of changed my life. Because I told him I was an AA, you know. And uh, he said, I've sort of changed my life around a little bit, too. Because we used to run hard together. And he said, you know, I'm a member of the church. And I try to help people. He said, you know where that cafe is in town there? And that man in there? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I was sitting in that other day having a cup of coffee. And he said, this drunk came through. And he said, he walked in and he asked me for a job. And I told him, I said, I didn't. I don't have anything for him, but uh, he said, well, he said, I'm really trying to straighten my life out. And he says, I just, I'll move on. He said, I'm trying to quit drinking, and I'm trying to better myself. And I just, you know, he said, I hadn't drank in a couple of months or whatever. And he said, the man went outside and said, I don't occur. Carl said, you know, I looked at him, and I said, you know, I went outside, and I said, are you really serious about trying to turn your life around? And the man said, yeah, I am. He said, well, come on. He said, I can't give you a job till after the first of the year. There's a little motel on the edge of town here, and he says, I'm going to put you in there. And I know the owner, and I'm going to give you two meals a day. And I said, I'm going to pay the <clears throat> motel bill until you can get yourself on the feet, get, you, get yourself straightened out. He said, I took him out there, and I put him in that motel, told the owner, which I knew, and I'd come by every Friday pay the bill. He said, you know, last night, he says, Margaret, my wife, and I were talking. And I said, Margaret, i got to go pay that bill tomorrow. I said, where are we going to get the money from? And he said, you showed up. See, there's a part of my book that tells us that once we make God our employer, that we become his employees, and he's got the job for us to do. And see, I think the problem of Alcoholics Anonymous, what it really is, is one human being helping another with God's guidance. And that's how we get sober, and that's how we stay sober, is with His grace and us helping each other. And I remember that morning I rode through Manning, and I rode through by, by my mom's house, that house that I used to be ashamed of, and I looked over at it, and it's falling apart. And I was not ashamed of it anymore. I was proud of it. 
And I rode up down that street that I had to walk to school with so many times, and I was feeling so embarrassed and so, so that low self-esteem and that full of fear and that full of guilt for whatever reasons I had it. And I knew right then that I'd never have to sit in the back seat of a car again unless I chose to. And on the way out of town, that liquor store that I used to get that bottle from was closed up. But you see, I didn't need it. Because, you see, I'd been given the greatest gift that an alcoholic can be given. And that was the gift of sobriety. And I was happy, and I was joyous, and I was free. And early on in this fellowship, I heard a little prayer. And it's called a faith prayer. And it goes something like this. It says, where there's faith, there's peace. And where there's peace, there's love. And where there's love, there's God. And where there's God, there's no need. And you see... I found all the faith I needed here. I found all the peace I needed here. I found all the love I needed here. And I found, last but not least, God here. And if nobody's told you today that they loved you, let me be the first. Thank you very much.